she was like a mid fifties uh, patient who was signed out to me on this team that we were treating, you know, we're treating patients. She'd been there for three or four days. She was of the, this was back when we had a, a fairly large group of patients we were taking care of. She was by far the best. She was doing the best of the 15 or 20 patients we had. Uh, and, uh, you know, we were just checking in on her. She was doing well on the nasal cannula, um, uh, high flow nasal cannula. We we're going to downgrade her to regular nasal cannula. And, uh, you know, I was checking in on her. She was texting and, you know, basically just allowing the oxygen to do its thing. And, uh, and then 15 minutes later, she was found to not be breathing. And, um, we were resuscitating her. And during the resuscitation, um, you know, when someone's taken from a world where they're just normal, you know, aside from the fact, you know, she'd been on this respiratory support, but be basically functioning, eating, you know, and that's one of the weird things about coronavirus. Like when you're, you know, when you're treating them, you're just allowing the oxygen and, and tincture of time to allow the virus to take its course. And now we're coming up with medications that might mitigate viral replication and, you know, the inflammatory response associated with the second part of the, the, the disease pattern. But in the meantime, we're just allowing basically the patient to exist and do their thing. And when they're normal, they're just kind of doing normal things. So she was texting and then she crashed, she went into cardiac arrest. Like 15 minutes later, she was in cardiac arrest. We're resuscitating her. And during the resuscitation, I realized like her, no one had taken her phone away from her. No, no one had like stopped it. So her phone is in her lap as we're doing chest compressions. And I can see the text coming in, continuing a conversation that she had been engaged in 20 minutes prior, like normal, you know, and it's just heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking because even though you don't really know this patient, you know, in, in a very intimate way, you see the intimacies uh, into their lives and you're, you know, and you're, you're kind of, it's reiterated that these are people with like their family checking in just like you are. And I think that those are important things to remember when you're kind of in the hustle and bustle of, of, of treating a lot of patients. And, and it's a reminder of how much is really at stake in this virus that you can't just, you, you have to be just consciously vi vigilant, you know, continuously vigilant. Hello, welcome to Medical Murmurs, where emergency physician Dr. Paris Lovett talks with other doctors about their lives and their work in medicine. Hello, and welcome to Medical Murmurs, where I, Paris Lovett, chat with other doctors about their lives and their work in medicine. Today, we're changing the format a little. I have two guests. Both of them are emergency physicians. Dr. Mert Aragol and Dr. Josh Schiller are both at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York City. They are also the creators of Airway Stories, a podcast which tells amazing stories from the front lines. It's at airwaystories.org, and you should really check it out. Dr. Mert Aragol and Dr. Josh Schiller, welcome. Hi. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining. 
I asked them about some recent patient stories from the ER. Mert, do you, do you want to share anything? I had a guy once who I was coding. This isn't about COVID, but <laughs> this guy, he came in, This they brought in this uh, homeless guy who uh, we, had, we were coding him and his this cell phone's little ring went off and everybody's looking around. It turns out it's his cell phone in his pocket going off. And it's, uh, it's a, I think, a Los Angeles number. So I was like, okay, I picked up the phone and, and we didn't know anything about the guy. So I wanted to see if he had a medical history. So I answered the phone and the guy was like, is so-and-so there? I was like, um, I'm actually the doctor and he's in the emergency room. He's very sick. What can you tell me about him? And, and um, the guy on the other end was like, oh my God, are you serious? I, I, what, this is so weird. Okay, um, I, I don't know. He's a, he's a producer. He's a, and it turned out this guy was like a major, like a well-known producer, produced a lot of um, well-known you know, acts like the Beastie Boys, among other. And, um, and but he didn't know anything about his medical history. And I went back in and they're still coding the guy. And suddenly this guy that I, I saw as a, a homeless, like, you know, like I judged him. He, um, he kind of looked like this hipster kind of guy suddenly, you know, I saw him differently. Um, and anyway, he got his, he got his, uh, he got, we got Rosk. And he was uh, admitted to the hospital. That's when we get someone back. Yeah, because he's he's uh, worthwhile. Now he just happened to happened to get Rosk, and he got admitted to the hospital. But apparently, he died in the hospital. And then a few days later, there was an article in the New Yorker. The guy that I talked to, who's uh, he's uh, I, th- I forgot what he was. He was a director or producer or something like this known quantity in in, in Hollywood. Wrote a talk of the town piece about how he called the hospital or he called his friend and the, and the orderly, like the foreigner, the orderly from another country answered the phone and um, how shocking it was to hear about his friend's death that way. It was just a surreal, you know, sequence of events. Did you put on a foreign accent for some reason? (laughs) Yeah, I must've been like, hello. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you, I you, didn't. Sw- I didn't. you switched on your Turkish accent. Can you do that if you want to? He formed a judgment of me, just like, just like I'd formed a, a judgment of that other guy. You are listening to Medical Murmurs. Do you have any stories uh, uh, from, from COVID that are jumping out while we're talking? <laughs> Well, there's that. There's the hundred-year-old uh, woman. Is that the one you're referring to? There's a hundred-year-old woman that um, came in, you know, and she had COVID. And my God, you just don't want a, a woman who's reached a hundred years of age to die in the hospital, you know. So I was, I just wanted to send her home. And she was a like a Hasidic uh, Jewish woman. And, um, but she, you know, became hypoxic and so kind of forced our hand. And uh, I call, you know, the family's not at the bedside. So I called her son and I said, well, we have to admit her to the hospital. She's very sick. He said, okay, well, let me know how it goes. I said, okay. 
And I was so busy, so busy. It was like, you know, at the point, like kind of the surge, the peak of the surge, running around. And this son kept calling me. How is she now? Well, she's the same. Okay. She has, how is she now? And um, finally I said, listen, you know, she's a hundred years old and she has pneumonia in both lungs. Okay. She's not going to do very well. All right. So I, I, I have to get back to what I'm doing, but I, I just want you to know that it's very dire. It's very serious. And I hung up and like 10 minutes later, he called back, how is she doing? And I said, listen, sir, um, she's not conscious anymore. And I'm very busy. And uh, he's like, I need to talk to her. And I said, no, you can't talk to her. I'm too busy. Okay. He said, I need, to, I need to say a prayer. And I said, what prayer? He said, I need to say a prayer for, for a dying person. And, and so I, I stopped everything, walked over to her, and held the phone up to her ear. And he started praying, and he started crying. And he couldn't even get the words out. He was crying and praying for his mother. And suddenly I just felt, oh my God, you know, like I just, everything kind of slowed down and I felt like, you know, I had been so checked out emotionally and that this was, it was really of value to kind of be restored to myself or brought back to myself. And he finished the prayer, you know, in tears. And he said, thank you, doctor, bless you. And I, and I said, thank you to him too, because it was like um, kind of an emotional wake-up call. That was a that was a powerful moment. Yeah, it's a pretty striking story. I always like to start by asking people a bit about their early lives. Josh, uh, you know, we're talking your childhood, what kind of kid you were how you drifted towards medicine, emergency medicine, if you could just give us a bit about yourself. Uh, well, I didn't go into medicine directly, actually very far from it. I um, went into, I was actually, I believe the oldest um, first year medical student in my class. Um, and I think that trajectory has become, I was known as an atypical student. I think I've become a lot more, well, a lot less atypical uh, as medicine has um, opened up to the idea that um, people can have a career beforehand uh, and go into medicine and actually be pretty good doctors. Um, so I came upon medicine as uh, a result of um, exploring different interests that I had that took me various places um, from college onward. Uh, and um, and so I ultimately ended up in medicine, but I basically had worked overseas. Uh, I had majored in economics, um, worked overseas in the Middle East, and that occurred uh, right before the first Gulf War, which uh, then rendered me uh, isolated there while the school closed down and people were evacuated. I was brought, I was evacuated briefly. Uh, to Cyprus was brought back to uh, Tel Aviv, where I was teaching at an American international school, and and then the school closed down, and I couldn't leave. So I was basically in my living in my sealed room, uh, watching Scud missiles come in and um, 
sort of attack Tel Aviv. Uh, and then finally, uh, after the war sort of subsided from the Israeli standpoint, went back to uh, America and worked uh, doing economic stuff and hated that. Um, ended up quitting and buying a motorcycle and um, ending up um, riding cross country, spent about eight months on the road, ended up settling in Montana, writing poetry, uh, became a carpenter, <laughs> worked with my hands a lot, um, spent a couple of years there. And then during the course of one winter where there's not a lot to do, there was no internet. Uh, winters in Montana, there's an expression when you live in Montana where you have uh, nine months of winter and three months of company. So there's really not a lot of opening for um, basically doing stuff. Anyways, uh, I ended up applying to uh, a school of international affairs politics at um, in Columbia, which is known as uh, the School of International Public Affairs, SEPA, um, after reading a book uh, of uh, Middle East history. I'd been in the Middle East and calling the professor over the winter uh, and asking him some of his ideas about what he was writing about. He, asked, he was still there, still practicing. And um, we ended up getting into a month-long kind of like series of phone calls until he encouraged me to apply to SEPA, where he ran the Middle East Institute. I ended up going to Columbia School of International Public Affairs, uh, worked for the Council on Foreign Relations, and then was working in Egypt and decided that really, I think my where I, I was working at a hospital, um, doing some work uh, translating for a urologist, uh, which was the connection of someone uh of whom i was working with to do this economics project it was like a side project and then decided that that was really where i wanted to spend most of my time so ended up applying to medical school and um that's how i ended up yeah just a simple like straight course right through <laughs> what what was it about medicine I and mean, what what penny dropped for you well you know i originally thought i wanted to save the world by you know but through diplomacy i you know i think i looked at diplomacy as a very sexy, um, very uh, intellectual, heady uh, enterprise where you're you're exchanging ideas and coming up with the best solutions given thoughtfulness and um, an awareness of the realities of the politics and um, geography and security issues and resource scarcity, you know, economics, uh, uh, looking at the world through sort of the, the lens of um, resources, demand, and supply. And I think it's a really good discipline. But um, as I realized, I still think that that's a, a wonderful way of going about one's life and, and career. But for me personally, I think I really just missed like the smells and the, and the, and the tactile nature of like feeling like I was – interacting with um, people on, on, on like a street level on a sort of like much more resonant level rather than dealing with the leads at a sort of like a, you know, in an ivory tower type atmosphere. So that's what I liked about medicine. And ultimately that's what I liked about emergency medicine. How did you pick your specialty? Well, um, I think much in the same way I picked medicine i think i picked my 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 specialty i think i experimented i was drawn towards things that were tactile because you know i think when someone um is really curious about how to choose a career i think you really shouldn't shy away from your interests so for me um 
I had practiced uh, the intellectual uh, pursuit of college uh, and and had been raised to do that, you know, to raise to go to college. I never really known anything about building anything with my hands. And that's why I was really interested in, in learning um, some of the arts of building um, through masons and carpenters and uh, metalsmiths. And so those are the people I worked with and interacted with when I was in um, Montana. Um, and uh, and I still look at those people as mentors. I'm still in touch with many of the people that I worked with. And so uh, instead of looking at each step of the way as a um, independent, mutually exclusive part of one's life, I think you accrue a skill set at every stage that you bring with you to the next stage. And so ultimately, by the time I went to med, I got to got to medical school. I really was interested in med, uh, working with my hands, and so I was drawn to the surgical disciplines, but really liked the uh, nature of variability and unexpectedness that one has when you're surrounded by undifferentiated patients. So emergency medicine combined both the intellectual uh, with the physical, with the kind of frenetic nature that's, you know, kind of like um, parallels my ADHD. You are listening to Medical Murmurs. I'm going to bring in Dr. Mert Aragol. Mert, talk to me a bit about your early life and then from there, how it was that you made a decision to go into medicine. Well, I, th I think I've always, all from a very early age, you see my dad's a doctor and actually Josh didn't mention it, but his dad is a doctor too. And there's, God, there's, Mert, um, self-hating doctor. I'm sorry, Josh. <laughs> Um, and, you know, I, at one point I taught medical students and there was a room, you know, 200 medical students. I asked how many of them had family members in healthcare, and over half of them raised hands. So there's something to be said about this process of socialization that happens when you have a family member who practices medicine, like the kind of guild aspect of it or whatever. But, you know, from a young age... What, when my when somebody would ask me, you know, what what I wanted to do, I would say, you know, astronaut or whatever, and my dad would say, and doctor, you know, because that was the that was the plan from a very early age, and and I think my parents, you know, were immigrants. I mean, I wasn't born in this country; I was born in Turkey, and part of the immigrant experience is kind of getting a foothold in the new land and getting a profession, you know. So it was partly that very practical consideration. There was no question of, oh, I want my son to um, achieve, you know, actualize himself or find whatever he really wants to do. It was like, you're going to be a doctor, you know, or an engineer or something. And there was a brief, you know, intense rebellion when I went to college. I decided I was going to be a writer um, and make films. And that's what all my friends were doing. And I studied comp lit. Um, I, you know, entertained the idea of, you know, what do you do with comp lit, like graduate school? That seemed lame. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I, I took the requisite science classes as well and was 
kind of adrift, you know, wasn't really sure. I was interested in science. I was more interested in literature and writing. And so what I did what uh, seemed like the best thing to do, which was to take a year off and travel to India. So I was like, in India, you know, by the way, that was also a huge, you know, rupture with my parents because um, my dad took me aside one day. He's like, listen, I'm, I'm not going to pay for this. So you're going you're gonna to end up with a guitar on your back, barefoot, walking across India. And I was like, well, that actually sounds really good. That's exactly what I want to do. And I was in India and Japan and Thailand or whatever, had this sort of adventure and met a lot of people without any borders or boundaries selling beads. And I was like, you know, I really have to get a job at some point. And um, ended up in medical school and really struggled. Like, I just didn't feel it was my identity. You know, I hadn't, I, I, I didn't come to medical school in a way that um, many people do, which is that they've already made up their minds. I'm going to be a doctor. This is my calling. This is my passion. Instead, it was a sort of, I, I drifted into it and I was good at taking tests and good at, you know, science or whatever. So I um, got through medical school and I actually, to my credit, did well. And I picked the field that I thought would give me the most opportunity to work a little bit and also then have my life, whatever that was going to be, to be determined. And I looked forward to the, to the time when I could, you know, use emergency medicine as a kind of, uh, uh, you know, trade that I could pick and choose and then, and then, and then instead like really live my life. And the next thing you know, you know, I did my residency and I came to New York and I got involved in academic sort of, you know, medical education, teaching, and it became like a full-time total commitment, you know, like more, more so than, you know, the person who's just doing shifts. And so I really kind of grew into it and it became my identity over time. And um, I'm, I'm glad I did. I mean, I, I really... I feel like it, it really, you know, enriched me. I mean, certainly the medical education part of it was good. Um, and, uh, and, and emergency medicine is tough. You know, there are difficult aspects. And we, I'm, I don't know if we're going to get into that, but uh, um, it's good to have some other sort of side gig uh, in, in ER. But that's, that was sort of my path. It was, it was also a roundabout path, but maybe... Um, a little different than Josh's. So, Merritt, you you are. It sounds like you've you, you know you're you're in academics. You're you're 100 involved there, but you are doing other things. Uh, among them is airway stories. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, ER is uh, a place where there are incredible stories. I mean, you you. You encounter people you, you, at, at, at you know very vulnerable moments, and there are always stories to tell. And it's interesting. It's interesting to hear the stories of your colleagues, and it's also, I think, therapeutic to tell your story. So Josh and I started this uh, along with Arlene Chung, this um, kind of forum where we could, you know, get together, tell stories, and we started with our own program at Maimonides. Um, and then now we've spread all over the place and we have these regular events that hopefully Paris you'll come to one day 
or maybe, you know, we'll, we'll do a virtual one actually on June 7th, I think. But um, doctors tell stories that are, you know, funny, poignant, uh, challenging, uh, embarrassing. I mean, oh, the whole range of experience. And it, it really does, it, it really does, uh, it's a healing and also uh, it's a learning experience. And also it's fun. It's a good opportunity to have a couple of drinks and just have a good time. And that's at airwaystories.org. And I think people should really check that out. Yes. So we're in the midst of all this COVID stuff. You guys are in New York City. You've had a very different experience from me. I just, you know, like you, I'm an emergency physician, but I have not been practicing in New York City. And uh, over the past two months, I have thought several times for sure I had someone with COVID, and I have yet to have one rule in. And that couldn't be more different, I know, from what you're seeing. So I was wondering if you could tell me... uh, what it's like, and and share some stories. Well, I had a guy today who didn't have COVID. That was kind of interesting. Yeah, that's like the that's like the uh, the novel story these days from Brooklyn. It's uh, it hit us hard. I mean, we were on. Unpro- I mean, I remember watching the news and and looking online and seeing what they were dealing with in China and just sort of head smack like people dying in the streets and spraying the streets, and they were literally washing their currency because they didn't know how this thing was spreading and it was kind of vaguely interesting and the next thing you know it just rushed up on us and it might have been circulating in new york you know a a long time ago before we before we knew about it but we weren't ready for it and our hospital like many hospitals you know stocked personal protective equipment uh in a sort of just-in-time fashion so when it ran out, um, there was no supply chain. The supply chain had broken down. And so we were basically rationing from day one. I mean, some a lot of the N95s kind of disappeared, like people took them home. And uh, we all had these little, these surgical masks. And at the end of the day, you'd put your surgical mask in a paper bag and the next day pick it up. And, and the, the funniest uh experience I had was the uh, like day four of my surgical mask. I put it on and I was working and then I sort of went to the bathroom and I realized I put it on backwards. You know, it was this kind of sad trombone, like, but uh, I probably had the disease at that point already. I got sick early on and I I don't think I caught it from the hospital. I caught it from some friends who went to a dinner party and like a few days later, those people got really, really sick. So I think I caught it from them. But um, and we, did you test positive? I tested negative. I, I tested myself right away, and it was negative. And then yesterday, I had an amp- antibody test, and the results of that are pending. I, I'm pretty sure I had it. Although, you know, people who've actually had positive PCRs at our institution have tested negative for antibodies. Not sure what that means. And then people who had no symptoms that had positive antibodies. So everything is kind of up in the air. There's a lot of ambiguity. Yeah, it's frustrating. Um, so at the height of it, I mean, I know that now the numbers have, have come down some, but at the height of it, what did what did it feel like in the ER? What did it look like? It was very quiet. <laughs> it's very. I think that was the most shocking thing. I mean, I, I think people are talking about it now, but you know, I think I think you know a lot of the a lot of the typical yelling and screaming that you hear from you know drunken 
altered patients who make up a daily diet of the um, patient population just wasn't there, uh, along with many other types that are kind of forms the, the uh, as we're seeing, like the financial backbone, as well as the social um, kind of the, the, the social kind of landscape that uh, is typical simply wasn't showing up because everybody's too too concerned or scared to, to show up. And so the people were showing up were people who were, who were really in um, in some sort of form of respiratory dysfunction um, or people who are just scared. Um, and so people were very quiet, very respectful um, or very sick or, or some combination of that. And family members weren't there. That's, that was the other thing that was just very bizarre that we so accustomed. I mean, our, our emergency department is com- so condensed. I mean, we, we, we're one of the most dense, densely packed you know, geographically emergency departments in the country. I think there are statistics for this. We may be number one. Um, And so it's always this loud uh, kind of chaotic place, even more so than the typical ER. And when you exclude family members from the bedside, it just felt like a laboratory. You know, you had all these intubated people, people with masks on their faces. And it was, you're right, it was quiet. It was eerie. And every now and then you'd hear, you know, uh, an announcement that, you know, somebody else needed to be intubated or coded upstairs, you know, which was really ominous. Um, and and everybody was covered up and, and uh, you know, we were all kind of had our masks on and struggling. Like the first like two or three weeks of the of uh, when we finally got there and N95s, I just had a headache because the thing fits so tight on my face. I was just walking around with a headache and like a callus on my nose um people aren't used to it either i i first for the first day i wore you know and n95s and these masks as you probably well know they're not designed to wear for hours on end they're you know they're designed to wear for discrete moments when you kind of need to be you know using them and then take them off and discard them and you know, we've redefined how we use a lot of the elements of PPE. And also the first day I, I had mine, I, I was like, this thing is just not, you know, every time I open my mouth, it's like slipping out, like, I, you know, the mask would like slip up over my like, my cheekbone and realize I, I didn't like, wasn't fully aware of the fact that there are different sizes and I had a small on. <laughs> And it was like riding up the bridge of my nose, like I'd yawn and the thing would be like above my eye blind. So I, I'd forgotten about how we were supposed to get, you know, you're supposed to get fitted for these, you know. Um, but, you know, during this type of scenario, every, all these rules are, are kind of not considered as strongly. So, yeah, I mean, it's funny, right? But we had a number of colleagues who got sick. One of our attendings ended up in the ICU. Um, we, you know, there's some pretty high profile faculty are now on ECMO in the ICU. We have a a housekeeping person died today. I mean, a lot, I think a lot of these people got sick at the beginning of the pandemic. I want to, I want to hope that, you know, wearing the N95 protects us to some extent. You don't hear as many stories anymore of people being sick, but I mean, it, it, it is, uh, it is tragic. I mean, nobody signed up to, you know, nobody signed up for this kind of work. Um, 
there's there is a degree of tragedy if you if you see it from that perspective. I think maybe it's 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 um, an adaptive response to to laugh about it, but um, it, 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 we've definitely put ourselves in danger. And I don't think our hospital failed us. It's just the whole thing was you know if anybody failed us, it was the federal government that kind of stepped back and and. Uh, decided, you know, this isn't our problem, this is the state's problem, which I think is a total shirking of the responsibility. We could have a whole political discussion if you want. <laughs> yeah. I, I I think it's interesting how the juxtaposition, I mean, the juxtaposition of the quietness within the hospital is uh, in direct opposition to all the noise and anxiety and media playing up the you know, like these headlines and the um, the concern and and uh, the um, the extreme nature of what this pandemic has done societally to us and politically and however whatever direction you want to go, where you know friends and neighbors and strangers would come out of the woodwork. I mean, you know, I'm sure you've probably heard, and and this is probably true of other places in the country, if not the world. I actually think it started in, where is it, in um, Spain or Italy, where in New York, every at seven o'clock, there's cheering for the healthcare workers and the essential workers that are working. Um, And I think that is the, I think it's an extension of, true appreciation but i also think it's fueled by anxiety and a sense of um futility that most people have when they're sheltering in place they can't do anything they can't they they want to feel like they want to feel like at least be part of like the solution and so they they kind of like funnel this energy into people who are doing work and um and so uh, Mert and I have laughed about it and with some of our colleagues, you know, we're, we're getting so much love that it's uh, unprecedented um, where, you know, a lot of us might have felt unappreciated uh, before because, you know, the world really doesn't see inside the emergency room unless you're on TV. And now, I mean, we're like front lines, you know, essential workers is headlined on every newspaper, every day, all day long, to the point where I feel like if I see another person take a selfie with their PPE on, I'm just going to be like, going to barf into my N95. Um, and also, I think that uh, it is a, I, I fear what's going to happen when this becomes less of a concern, it's less in the media, the world moves on, because coronavirus is not going anywhere anytime soon. We're going to have patients who are going to come in very sick, uh, novel to them, uh, because they haven't been exposed yet, either because they're, you know, sequestered uh, from the world in New York City, or they live somewhere else uh, where they just don't have a high density population and they just haven't caught it yet. But these people are still like, you know, there's going to still be a patient population that's going to get really sick. Yeah, I mean, we really don't know what subsequent waves might look like. You know, there's still a lot of mystery around it. You are listening to Medical Murmurs. If you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to review us on iTunes and other forums. You can also visit medicalmurmurs.com and sign up to hear about new episodes. Tell me, tell me some patient stories that you remember. 
I had a patient the other day. Um, she had been in, uh, it was just a very odd, you know, it's actually not very COVID specific. It could have happened in uh, some other time, but she was slightly demented. She was actually pretty demented, elderly patient um, who, <clears throat> you know, there's always sounds that are familiar when behind closed curtains, you can kind of tell what may be happening because you hear someone scream out and, and, in discomfort or confusion or both, particularly if they're demented. And it sound, just sounded like someone was, the nurses were putting a Foley in place. Uh, and uh, this woman was like, oh, 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 and then she like had this long sustained scream that as the scream progressed, it turned into this incredibly harmonic, tremulous, operatic, like our aria of a sustained note where it's like, I can't do it because I can't speak. Uh, yeah, I can't speak up. I can't sing. But she was like, oh, 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 and she just went into this like amazing, like aria for that. <laughs> and everybody was, you know, at first everybody's kind of going about their business. Ah, yeah, yeah, you know. And then all of a sudden that when the note sustained itself and hovered, everybody, you could just tell, I looked across to see where the, you know, where the patient was. And between me and the patient, there was the entire emergency room and everybody just stopped and kind of looked up. And like, there was just a moment, just a moment, where everybody just quieted down and admired this beautiful noise, <laughs> this beautiful, this beautiful single note. <laughs> and then it kind of trailed off and, you know, but you could tell this is probably a woman at some point in her life that had been formally trained in opera. <laughs> That's hilarious. Merit, do you have any, uh, stories from these recent weeks? Well, there's one guy. We, you know, we had, first of all, I must say that this is a new disease. And so <clears throat> there was from a very early point, differences of opinion among experts about how to manage this, particularly about resp you know, ventilation and mechanical ventilation and oxygenation. And we were seeing very, very bizarre things that we, we weren't accustomed to, like people with, you know, oxygen saturations in the 40s or 50s who were talking to and checking their cell phones or whatever. And the stated policy that came from the survivor se surviving sepsis campaign, I believe, was that, you know, after six liters nasal cannula, these patients need to be admitted, um, I'm sorry, intubated. And it didn't seem to make sense to us. And so we kept people on, uh, you know, on high, higher levels of oxygen and on, on uh, high flow. We started using high flow. And the minute we admitted these high flow patients uh, to the hospital, they'd get intubated. And so we decided as a, as a department to keep them in the hospital, in the emergency department, and manage them ourselves. And so we had a whole cohort at some point, like 15, 20 patients that we were managing in the emergency department by ourselves on high flow, trying to forestall intubation and all the you know, consequences and complications of mechanical ventilation. And, and um, one guy in particular uh, spent like 12 or 13 days on high flow. He was a 32-year-old guy and at one point, he, he couldn't lie on his back because he desat. And so we had him, you know, like a soldier, like prone for 10 days and hardly sleeping, you know, um, kind of getting a little crazy, 
talking to his wife and kids sometimes on the phone, sometimes just complaining, uh, talking to every single nurse and every single doctor took care of him, you know, over the course of 10 or 12 days. I mean, he became this guy that you come in the morning, you look, how's he doing? How's he doing? Everybody was asking about him. And, um, and we were proud that we were doing okay because he should have been in the ICU. The ICU wanted him and we refused to send him up to the ICU and it became our thing. And he got up into the mid nineties. He was setting well, and then he, something happened. He must have thrown a clot or I don't know what happened. And he, he crashed a few days ago and he ended up getting intubated. Now he's on ECMO in the ICU, um, which was, I mean, I didn't realize the extent to which we were all invested in his well-being and his care. And it really, you know, we took a chance. We kind of uh, had an experience that's not entirely um, common to us in the emergency department. We had developed this long-term relationship with this guy and it was disappointing. I mean, I think we're all proud of what we accomplished by keeping him alive and off a vent for that long. That's a big deal. A lot of people, if you're on a vent for 12 days with this disease, you end up with a lot of, you know, like lung damage and renal failure and so on and so forth. And he, and he went up without those problems, but I wish it were a, it were a happier, happier story to be able to tell, but um, we, we really did get attached to him. I remember, and, and it is, and it's a unique for emergency medicine. You tend to forget that you know that you're really having continuity of care. We did form like this service where we basically tried to take um, ownership of the patients. We felt like we needed to have support respi- respiratory wise as much as possible. We're still doing that. But the extension, as Mert mentioned, is that, you know, we would end up taking care of these, we, we take, we're taking care of these patients for days, if not weeks on end. And so we're formulating these different relationships that we're used than, than we're used to. And, uh, and it really does bring out um, a part of, you know, the doctor part of our personalities that maybe is undeveloped or hasn't really been fully developed because, of the fact that we're most of our patient population we deal with in, you know, a moment and then we discharge them for someone else to follow up with. But that's the nature, that's, that's the nature of the specialty. And, you know, just for people that, that aren't doctors or, or don't work in ERs, I mean, the nature of emergency medicine is that people come in and within an hour or two or three, you make a decision. They're either going home or they're being admitted, but either way, uh, if they're going home, they leave. And if they get admitted, you get a bed for them on an inpatient floor and another doctor takes over their care and you move on to the next patient. And so we don't have that ongoing relationship to them. But it seems in this case as though all of this sprang from a difference in philosophy over management, essentially whether to intubate or not. And, you know, as I said at the beginning, I have been in working in an area that has not seen anything like the activity of COVID that you guys have seen. But I've certainly been uh, you know, very much involved in, in, in reading the shifts in perspective. And I remember very early on, we were being encouraged. Uh, it seemed as though people did better with early decision to intubate and artificially ventilate. And, uh, and, and, and now it seems to have maybe um, uh, validated the, the tech that you guys were taking about actually avoiding that. Yeah, of course. Yeah, people are doing better 
um, with non-invasive. What's amazing is there hasn't been enough time to do studies. And so this whole debate has been conducted on social media, uh, people yelling, each other, uh, yelling at each other on Twitter. Um, and uh, the, the mainstream media has picked up on it. So there was an article in the New York Times that was kind of a, it was a, it was a, um, attempt to present both sides of the argument, but it's kind of clear to us after taking care of all these people that they do tolerate low oxygen saturations. Their lactate doesn't bump even after many, many, many days. And mechanical ventilation is not a joke. I mean, that really, it may be part of the problem. You know, the, the, the way these lungs, um, the, the way the lungs are, are sort of left by this disease, uh, the, pre- the pressure and the, the ARDSNAP protocol uh, might end up creating more problems than it solves. But, you know, to be continued, I mean, at some point somebody's going to do a study and um, then we'll know uh, for sure. You know, I would say, though, it's this kind of scenario that really brings out, you know, I think someone mentioned, you know, like, we didn't sign up for this. This is like, you know, this is crazy. I mean, we have residents who are just graduating or not yet, not yet residents, you know, medical students who just graduated are going to come right into this. And, you know, there's been stories about how they're going to step into this pandemic and not really get as full, like an orientation. They're not going to be able to like kind of get their feet wet. And I say, and I've said to the residents and even some of our attendings, and I actually needed to be reminded of this from my a couple of my brothers who are doctors, that this is exactly why you went into medical school. That for a situation like this, where you feel like you are actually making an impact on on someone in a in a really important way, and I and I and I think to to underscore what Mert was talking about with these, you know, with taking care of patients, this one particular patient that we all sort of has enamored himself with the department because we've all taken care of him. He's young, he's got a family, you know, and patients like him is that I've found that it's not so much the respiratory support that I think is is interesting. I think that's interesting. And I think it is really going to be profoundly changed. But I also think it's really interesting from the law, the continuity of care standpoint, that I realize that when taking care of this particular patient and patients like him, that really what they want most is they want things that are super simple. And so I would sit with him at his request and other patients' requests and simply allow him to stroke my hand, which sounds weird. It sounds weird. And he would request it in a way where he knew it sounded weird. And he wasn't trying to be weird. He said, you just would simply say, look, I've been here for 10 days. I need, I didn't realize this ever before, but I really need to feel somewhat the hum- the the simplicity of the human touch. And so there were other patients who were on this service who've been there for similarly long times who would also just stop, you know, and usually when, you know, someone has you stop, they're like, no, 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 you know, what do I do with this, you know, empty IV bag? Or what do I do with the, you know, holding up the canister of urine? Like, and so, you know, people are kind of like conditioned, like, all right, I don't want to deal with it. But now people are stopping you and simply saying, can you just hold my hand for a couple of minutes? Just, just, and, you know, and, and, and as an emergency doctor, you're like, I, you know, I got this, blah, blah, blah. but I, I found personally that when you sit and you take like five minutes and you simply enjoy this simple thing, it, it's like, it's almost like a, it's a therapy, not just for the patient. 
it's a therapy for everybody involved because you realize you're reminded of what it is that you're doing there. And it's an important lesson to learn. And, you know, they say the patient is the best uh, resource to learn by. And I think it's not just the disease, the, the disease process, but also um, the human element that we tend to forget in the crazy world of emergency medicine. You are listening to Medical Murmurs. You know, my ERs have been quiet like yours. You know, the, the absolute volume is down. People are sicker. The people that I do get, I'm admitting at a very high rate. I know Maimonides actually has a very high admission rate all the time. Um, but my admission rate has been high. All the diabetics now are DK, you know, meaning that they're sick. They're not just a little out of whack. And, uh, you know, everyone who's got heart failure has been off their meds now. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think we're going to see a huge volume spike now. Um, but in terms of why it was quiet, you know, some of it may have been that people were scared, but some of it may have been what you called pro-social behavior. People were trying to spare the ER. I mean, they're also afraid of the ER. But, uh, I mean, we had a guy, there was a guy with a brain tumor. I mean, he had a brain tumor with edema and midline shift. And this was in the early days of the pandemic. And uh, he refused to be admitted for surgery because he was afraid of catching the disease. And he actually eloped <laughs> when we weren't looking. He ran away because he was so afraid of COVID that he, was, he couldn't, obviously, he couldn't judge. He couldn't make a judgment about how dangerous his, his brain tumor was. But people are dying at home for sure. I mean, it was the same thing in Italy, the um, all-cause mortality. Um, I mean, there was like excess mortality uh, above and beyond the deaths from COVID. And the same thing, you know, we believe is happening in New York. Like people are just staying at home and dying of whatever. Like there are no stroke codes. There are, you know, I don't know, you know, there's no appendicitis. It's like it's just not happening. And then every now and then you'll see somebody with an advanced presentation of the disease come in and they can't they just can't hold out but i agree with you when when things finally clear up it's going to be the worst th three-day weekend in history it's just going to be like <laughs> <laughs> i mean this is the truth about emergency medicine some of this care is care that they make a choice about when they come and that's why when you get a three-day weekend the volume's down of the three-day weekend and then straight after that you get a spike in volume because people hold up their their emergency yeah, yeah. I wonder, I wonder, have you talked to any internists about how their practices are going? Because I, I know that they're not, their incomes are in danger, right? I mean, they're not getting office visits. And I mean, it's just kind of a... People are actually being furloughed. I've, I've got people, friends I know, uh, who doctors who've got no income. Yeah. Yeah, but I think that's going to happen more and more. I think, I think six months from now, if there's no second wave or third wave, um, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of, I think there's going to be a lot of hospitals retrenching because there's you losing huge amounts of money. Yeah. But if the, but the, but the volume, I think the volume will be bounced up. It will bounce back up. I, I suspect it will. Yeah. I mean, there's almost certainly going to be a second wave. Um, I mean, when, when you open up the city, if you have 20% of the people in New York have antibodies, that means 80%. Yeah. That's a disappointing figure. 
is ready to contract the disease and show up to the emergency room. So there's that. And I mean, the rest of the country, what is it, like 95% of the country is, or 98%. But I guess the open, the open question is, you know, as whatever happens, I mean, I, I don't think we will be doing the same thing we were doing in February. I don't think, no, in terms of the population, I don't think, you know, in February, people were not wearing masks. People were not cleaning their hands. They were not keeping distance. They were using the subway without thinking too hard about it. So I think a lot of those things will be different and we will see how it plays out. You are listening to Medical Murmurs. So, Mert, do you want to share, I want to circle back to a patient story, if there's just something that sticks with you? Uh, Let me think. Another story. Um, I should be writing these down. I mean, there's, there are so many, I mean, this, this pandemic has been such a bizarre experience. All these poor people, like, I mean, has there, have there been people that have come in that have died in the ER very soon after arrival that you know, came in, you know, I'm just wondering if you had anything like what we talked about, the patient that comes in talking and, and doesn't make it. Uh, yeah. I mean, there, there have been, there have been, you know, we've had, we've had plenty of people who, uh, and that's kind of one of the features of the disease. Actually, one of the, one of the interesting experiences that I had was to work at this, uh, facility that we set up, the hospital kind of set up this, um, almost like a departure lounge for COVID where, people who finished their hospital admission but just weren't well enough to go home go to this repurposed nursing home where they, you know, sit or lie down, stare at the ceiling for days and days with oxygen until their lungs get better. And so I did a couple of shifts there, and it was it was gratifying to see people kind of at the end of the process knowing that they're, for the most part, getting better you know, since our experience is mostly seeing them, you know, launching them into the hospital with a known 30% mortality rate, or if they're intubated, you know, 75 or 80%. It was a very different, more hopeful experience. But after a hospital admission uh, and this disease, these people are exhausted. They're weary. They don't have a lot to say. Um, they're just kind of like, very passive is what I found. It was interesting. I have a lot of respect for this disease. I and mean, we have no immunity against this thing. And I hope it doesn't, uh, I hope you don't have the same experience that we had in New York. But I mean, it's a really serious disease um, without treatment. Maybe, you know, in a month or two or three, there'll be something something of value. But I, I have a lot of respect for, for COVID. Um, so people just... Worth. People just look kind of checked out. I mean, maybe it's COVID brain. I mean, we were all speculating about the young woman who uh, committed suicide that was in the in the in the newspaper, and her. She was her a, she was a she was a good friend of mine. Yeah, hey, Paris. Can I ask you? Was this something out of character for her? Oh, very much so. Yeah, I uh, wonder. There was some medical problem, like with the with the disease. You know, I mean, we looked at the autopsies. There were a couple of presentations about autopsies, and it's pretty 
striking. The platelet proliferation, the megakaryocytes, the microthrombi, almost certainly, I mean, in, in every tissue, the kidney, the lung, the liver, heart, and why not the brain? I mean, I didn't see any brain samples, but it's entirely possible that there is something called COVID brain and and hopefully there's a, a certain degree of resilience that people get better. But It's shocking to think that it could have been some lab worker at that virology lab, you know, who made one mistake, you know, and became patient zero. You, you're buying this uh, uh, conspiracy theory of the, the lab? I don't think it's at the level of conspiracy anymore. I think it's a theory, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely not the ex- accepted. I mean, there's still a, still a very contentious theory. There's a few theories, all of which are plausible, and you know we'll, ne- we'll probably never know. Uh, but I don't, I don't think it's at the level of conspiracy. I think it's, yeah, it's 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 speculation, but it's reasonable speculation. Just as you know, so are the wet markets, you know. Right. I mean, you so there's two virology labs that both collect bats looking for viruses, and there's wet markets all in the same city. You know, what else do we know? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And 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 listen, like my friend, suicide. Uh, um, it's a mystery that we're not going to get any answers to. Yeah. There's, there's nothing we're going to do that's going to answer that question. Yeah. Hmm. So you were going to tell me a patient story. I mean, just something that's come recently that just stuck with you, a person. Boy, I'm coming up with a loss. I know I have I have a ton of stories. Um. I mean, when people come in with COVID, I mean, what what are they like? Maybe can you just think of someone who's pretty typical for you that you might have seen them you know, a month ago and just kind of vaguely recall what they were saying? You know, what were their family like? As much as you got a chance to see any family. You know? Yeah, well, you know, when, when people come in with this disease, they're afraid that you're going to tell them they have COVID. They kind of know, but you see them kind of uh, shaking in their boots as you formulate a diagnosis and then you you have to say the words and um, you try to normalize it, but people are f- terrified of this diagnosis. It's, the, it's such an unknown quantity. And so it's hard to tell people that, even though you know the, the odds are in their favor you know, especially young people, the odds are in their favor. And at the beginning, we had a lot of sort of Latin American guys like Mexicans, Guatemalans, Ecuadorians, one after the other, you know, coming um, uh, coming in, trouble breathing. And I don't know what was going on, whether they kept working or they were all giving it to each other. But, uh, you know, and then you have to talk to them in Spanish. And the problem is these guys they don't live alone in their, you know, two bedroom apartment. They live with like five other guys or, or their family members or a grandmother. And so it creates all these social issues in, in Brooklyn, which is, you know, a perfect place to grow a pandemic. It's like immigrants living in close quarters and people need to go to work. Um, And so it was, it turned out to be the perfect place or Queens, you know, I mean, it, it's it's amazing that the the I'll kind of get off topic a little bit, but it's amazing that the Republicans didn't seize on this on this pandemic. It's the perfect issue for the conservatives because it's here you have the unwashed hordes from other countries 
coming here, bringing this Chinese virus, getting sick, spreading it to Americans. And, um, and yet they, they, they resisted the idea of the pandemic because it affected the reelection chances of, of, of their candidate, I guess. But here I am in Brooklyn in the midst of this incredible richness from my perspective of different cultures and languages and ethnicities and, and everybody just struggling to get a foothold in this country. You know, that's my hospital. It's this incredible uh, proliferation of, of immigrants and Orthodox Jews. Um, and it's just, it, they just got hit really hard. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a resilient population and, and, and they'll, they'll bounce back. Uh, but it's, it's been truly the most memorable, you know, professional experience of my life. And hopefully uh, nothing will top this one. How did you feel when you had to intubate someone? Uh, you know, you, you were obviously aware that for you personally, that was going to be a, a higher risk moment. Yeah. Well, we read or heard of very early on this intubation box that this Taiwanese doctor had come up with. And so I had one of these fabricated at this plastic facility or whatever in Industry City. And, um, or um, anyway, so uh, we were using that to intubate. And you put your hands through it and intubate with a glide scope, and it reduces the the likelihood of transmission of uh, secretions. The one faculty member at our department who got really sick early on was intubating many, many people uh, uh, in the early days of the pandemic and, you know, without adequate protect protection probably. And she was young, you know, or maybe early 30s. Um, so we got the box going. And then we have, a, you know, there's a protocol where you intubate these people without – um, without, you know, bag valve mask, you kind of do a very quick intubation, you empty the room, you have negative pressure, you do everything you can to limit the um, likelihood of, of spreading the organism. Of course, it, it helped me that I feel like I already had the disease and I didn't even catch it in the hospital. I was an early adopter and I got it from my friends. So do you feel that you're less careful with things like doffing you know do you feel like you're uh, invulnerable to it now and you kind of uh, are not <laughs> it takes the edge off but we're still very careful i mean we you know i i still haven't had a positive antibody study or a positive pcr but it takes the edge off the anxiety uh, you know listen if i was 65 years old and obese uh i i would be I would probably not uh, put myself in this position. I mean, we've got all these new routines we do. I mean, at the end of my shift now, I wipe down everything that I'm taking home. You know, uh, I wipe my phone down twice. Yeah. I mean, will you ever look at a doorknob again the same way? It's just that uh, we're irre irrevocably changed. Yeah. I mean, it's always going to be with us, right? We'll, we'll be like the generation that lived through the, uh, the depression. Yeah. We're going to be always like sort of OCD about these things. Yeah. I mean, you, you wipe down your keyboard and you wipe down your mouse and all that kind of stuff. I mean, my family's moved uh, out of the house. They've been living upstate. So I'm alone here. Like in, in some ways it's 
fantastic. I have this incredible gift. I mean, I have two young children, so not to have to, you know, prepare meals for them and put them to sleep. And, and, uh, that is, it's kind of, has been kind of an amazing opportunity in my midlife. I never thought I'd have, on the other hand, it's like incredibly lonely. You know, I miss them terribly. Um, but yeah, you come home and you take a shower and uh, everything is hot and cold, you know, both in the emergency department and in your own life. And you are constantly preoccupied with this. And there's so much mental energy that goes into, you know, separating, you know, creating this category. Um, I don't think I'll ever stop wearing a mask. I mean, maybe not an N95 because they're so uncomfortable, but I'll probably continue wearing masks uh, for for the near term and maybe the medium term in the emergency department. I certainly think the flu season is going to be much less eventful than it has been in years past. People are worried about, oh, the flu and the COVID together, God forbid. But I think the flu is going to be a a trickle compared to what it's been in the past because everybody's wearing masks. Yep. And and distancing. Yeah. Whatever we do officially, people are not going to uh, go back to living exactly the way they did before. Yeah, I agree. But uh, it's really captivated the imaginations of uh, so many people in my life. I mean, everybody's thinking about it constantly. I mean, it may be less so now. The beginning was insane. The beginning of the pandemic was really, there was so much ambiguity and uncertainty about where this was going and people were dropping off left and right. And, you know, it it was a scary time for sure. And things have calmed down a little bit. Um, and I think even the next surge, it'll be more of a known quantity. We'll, we'll, we'll know what to expect. I hope it doesn't spread to the rest of the country the way it, it, it hit New York, honestly. Um, but if it does, at least you have a little head start. Well, New York definitely, I think, um, maybe more than anything, I think it was the severity of what hit New York that made it very real for the rest of the country. For those for those people who believe what's in the news and on TV, the rest of the people uh, who are, you know, reading a completely different media and, uh, and living in a different reality, uh, there, there are plenty of people who think it's a hoax. And so on the one hand, you want them to be safe. And on the other, um, a part of you is like, well, I hope you don't have to see what it's like, but you might have to see what it really is. Well, Dr. Matt Aragol, thank you so much for talking to us on uh, Medical Murmurs. Paris, what a pleasure to medically murmur with you. <laughs> Dr. Joshua Schiller, thank you for appearing on Medical Murmurs. It was great to meet you, um, and we'll talk, we'll talk again. Thank you. This is Medical Murmurs. If you're a medical student or just interested in medical careers, there is another episode with the same guest where we focus on career questions such as how best to get into a specialty and develop a career. It's called Medical Murmurs, Medical Student Edition. Check it out.